Welcome to NatSec Tech, a podcast from the Special Competitive Studies Project. I'm Jean Meserve, and it's great to have you with us. Artificial intelligence is going to have an impact on almost every field if it hasn't already. One of the places where it has the potential to be particularly transformational is in military operations, where it could impact everything from bookkeeping to intelligence gathering to weapon systems. Today, an update on the Pentagon's adoption of AI from two people involved in the effort. Lieutenant Colonel John DeSaro of the U.S. Air Force is a project officer at the Chief Digital and AI Office. He is a Task Force Lima co-lead on the Accelerate line of effort. Also joining us is Lieutenant Colonel Pedro Ortiz of the U.S. Marine Corps. He is AI Scaffolding Initiative Lead at the Chief Digital and AI Office. Great to have you both with us today. Great to be here. Thanks, Jane. So before we get into definitions of what's your office and what you're doing, I'd love to get from each one of you a sense of how important you think artificial intelligence is going to be to the Pentagon of the future. Is revolutionary too dramatic a word or not? Certainly making us uh, think about how we want to fight wars differently, think about how we do uh, business across the DOD as one of the largest uh, organizations in the world, uh, you know, differently, uh, how we recruit talent, recruit and retain talent differently. And I think, you know, revolutionary is probably an appropriate term. John, anything to add? Yeah, I think the ability to get knowledge and insight out of our data um, you know, where we've, you know, we've, we've been able to do that for a long time with kind of rules-based coding and rules-based capabilities and in, um, information technology, but the ability to actually partner with code, partner with, uh, you know, machine learning algorithms and, and uh, advanced analytics um, will really help us get uh, so much more um, out of our data that, you know, we can, with proper training and with, uh, you know, kind of building it into the process, we will learn a lot more from that data, uh, you know, to elevate it from ones and zeros to knowledge, to insight, to, to wisdom. So I think that that, that kind of leads one to believe that, uh, that revolutionary is, uh, is not um, uh, an inappropriate term. So Lieutenant Colonel Ortiz, the question is, how do we get there? For those of us who are not familiar with the terminology and the structure of the Pentagon, what exactly is the mission of the Chief Digital and AI Office? Yes. So the mission of the Chief Digital and AI Office is to uh, provide and enable um, data analytics and artificial intelligence uh, from, the, from the battlefield to the boardroom. And so that that's a lot of things, but that is uh, that is the essence of the mission. Uh, and and the in order to do what is to provide uh, decision advantage. So Lieutenant Colonel Desaro, where does Task Force Lima live, and what is its function? Task Force Lima direction came from the Deputy Secretary of Defense, uh, Dr. Hicks, and so she was uh, she kind of directed that um, when generative AI really started to seem like. Uh, military utility and capability to impact um, the, the the spectrum of of, uh, of per operations that the department works on. Uh, she decided that this it was you know a task force was appropriate 
uh, and that you know the C-suite that she would assign this to would be uh, Chief Digital and AI Office. Uh, and uh, so specifically, we have a Chief uh, Digital and AI Officer, uh, as uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Ortiz pointed out, uh, Dr. Martel. Uh, he's an industry guy, but with uh, some some defense ties. Um, so that's really kind of uh, opened uh, all the folks that are in the CDAO uh, in the office uh, our eyes to you know kind of a a, a much broader perspective than uh, strictly our military lens that we were looking at it from before. And I think that's what uh, Dr. Hicks was looking to get out of Task Force Lima, you know, was to uh, think about uh, the the capabilities, uh, the challenges, the um, opportunities threats, all, all those things that are kind of go along with application of technology like this that can affect, again, military operations from, you know, the, the literal tip of the spear to, or, or figurative tip of the spear, uh, all the way back to uh, operations that support uh, all those capabilities like logistics, uh, supply, and, and those kinds of things. I would love to get some specific examples of the kinds of things you're looking at where you think it will be useful. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Ortiz, you want to take that first? For all kinds of things, it could be simple as uh, straightforward admin administrative tasks. Uh, certainly uh, reading large documents and providing summaries of them is something I encounter every day. And, uh, you know, having that type of capability where we can put uh, documents uh, in them and summarize them and kind of save time, those kinds of uh, administrative tasks are um, a target for the use of generative AI. But then we look at things that are more complex. Uh, for example, uh, you know, part of, uh, you know, I think if people think about the military and the activities that they do, I think military planning is probably up there. And so the ability uh, to uh, generate possibilities for things that we could do inside of uh, plans um, is, is another uh, area that there are a lot of specific use cases under that, but certainly there's a broad area of planning that we would like to apply it to. Um, and then, uh, you know, I think when we think about those things, uh, it's important to note that, you know, we have some unique challenges, right? Maybe not so much for the administrative tasks, but for the mil military specific tasks, right? Going back to the example of planning um, is that, you know, it needs to be ground, the, the things that come out of a generative AI system uh, need to be grounded in some some sort of truth or fact, and the ability to provide uh, the basis for that truth or fact is gravely important for us. Uh, and I think there we have much higher consequences than most uh, commercial or private use cases. And so, you know, I think that's a couple examples in, in how we could leverage this technology for in the future. So I think the average citizen hears AI and military in the same sentence and their mind automatically goes to autonomous weapons. Is that something you're looking at? We are uh, a ways away from autonomous weapons and I, I wouldn't say that we are um, specifically in CDAO. Uh, I, I don't know of a single autonomous weapons program that uh, you know is, is approaching uh, any kind of operational status. So. Uh, no, I, I would say that uh, autonomous weapons are not something that that we're uh, focused on. Uh, but again, I think that you know the uh, some levels of autonomy for uh, other you know pieces of hardware in um, support systems uh, certainly are uh, within the pot the realm of the possible, uh, as well as uh, you know maybe some some um, uh, burgeoning opportunities to kind of resupply. Uh, uh, 
things that provide uh, combat power. So, so those are um, certainly uh, some capabilities. You know, I think uh, autonomous refueling, um, autonomous uh, ISR platforms, those kinds of things that help us uh, sense, make sense, and, and act uh, on the battlefield. I think that those things are uh, far closer um, to being uh, in in, uh, in operation. Are you keeping a close eye on how AI is being used on the battlefield in Ukraine and also now in the Middle East? So, so I think those are, you know, two good examples of places we look for, you know, how are things uh, changing with regard to the character of warfare, right? Um, and and we, should, we should pay attention to those things because um, if we don't, uh, we might miss something that is uh, important to this uh, revolution, as we talked about at the beginning of the interview. Winning in in uh, with regard to AI, right? It, it's going to be a team effort, right? And it's going to be a team effort where we take ideas from all kinds of places. And certainly, the way that uh, conflict and wars are being conducted today is some place that we should be keenly interested in as a Department of Defense. I'm wondering if AI creates potential risks and vulnerabilities for DoD. Uh, for instance, the attack surface for for cyber attacks is vastly expanded, isn't it? Um, you've got a lot more data you're going to have to protect. Um, is there a downside to using AI? Yeah, I'd say there certainly are some risks associated with uh, artificial intelligence. And, and again, it's, it's you know part of our mandate to explore those and make sure that those risks are managed. We commonly hear about risk management and uh, the we kind of start to rattle off a list of, of threats and, and vulnerabilities. And I think that we need to make sure that we're offsetting that with the benefits and we don't, we don't kind of cover those as, as readily sometimes um, because we want to, you know, kind of convince everybody that, Hey, we're, we're taking the threat seriously and, and we're managing that, that, that piece of it. Uh, but the, the advantages seem to uh, be, extremely valuable, you know, that, that will bring, uh, you know, a lot of capability to the Department of Defense and the way we operate and, and the, the way we sustain operations. Um, I think that, you know, the, the vast majority of, of these things probably are in less risky types of mission areas that, that, that will have the most, that where AI will have the most impact. You know, I think logistics, uh, the, the uh, logistics system that we use to supply uh, combat power across the world is enormous. And, and so, you know, that all that data, all the information that's, that's uh, contained in that system of getting stuff uh, where it needs to be at the right time, um, in the right uh, condition and, and, uh, and location, all that is a great application of artificial intelligence that will uh, benefit from, uh, from being a little less risky uh, in terms of, you know, uh, immediate consequence to uh, uh, a, a, a specific military situation, but at the same time have outsized impacts, right? you know, in, in the ability to, to get things to where they need to be and, and to support the operations uh, that, that need to take place, uh, be they, you know, uh, cooperation, like a, a, a evacuation type of operation or, uh, or, you know, all the way up to, to direct uh, armed conflict. I'm wondering if there's any danger in becoming too reliant on these super high-tech systems. Before we started recording, we were laughing because my landline was ringing. I keep a landline because I'm afraid cell service is going to go out. If we become more and more dependent on AI, 
what happens if it's knocked out? If it if it becomes disabled in some way, is the Pentagon then crippled? So I'll say, uh, you know, that this uh, question comes up a lot, and it's not not necessarily just with AI, but with all kinds of uh, enabling technologies. And uh, you know, I think um, <clears throat> that uh, you know, as a Department of Defense who's charged with prosecuting. Uh, warfare on behalf of our country and providing national security through warfare, right? Like we have a duty to make sure that we have redundancy uh, built in. And so those are some of the things that we wrestle with. Uh, now, you know, this desire for re redundancy for exactly the scenarios that you're talking about, like that's highly desirable. But at the same time, we got to weigh that against the uh, resource constraints that we have, right? The personnel and money, uh, and money available to us. And so, you know, these are questions that we grapple with and we try to be smart about the decisions we make when uh, incorporating new technology so we can balance uh, that risk. What are you seeing our adversaries and competitors doing relative to artificial intelligence? Well, I think our adversaries have a, a much different approach uh, to, well, almost everything. Uh, so, the, so I think that they're, their interests are uh, are represented, you know, or we can we can kind of read into uh, the way that they're applying technology. Uh, we could read a lot about their uh, the, the things that their objectives that they're that they're pursuing, uh, you know. So, you know, a, a, an authoritarian uh, organization that wants to, you know, have direct tracking of individuals through facial recognition, for as an example. Uh, of a potential adversary that 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 uh, that 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 shows that the interest in protecting those civil liberties and the the privacy of those individuals uh, takes a backseat, you know, to to the goals of the of the government that um, that are represented uh, by pursuing that kind of technology. So, but but specifically in terms of military, what military applications of AI are they looking at, and are they using? Well, I think there's there's a there's a broad spectrum there. Um, you know, there's there's uh, uh, opportunities for uh, some of the same opportunities that that we've talked about. You know, that are kind of large um, efforts that uh, are will obey, enable the our, our adversaries to to perform operations. You know, in, in an improved way with improved awareness of the battle space. Um, again, uh, we're not really at liberty to talk about a lot of those uh, specifics, um, just because uh, you know the, the the means by which that information is collected uh, uh, keeps us from doing that. Are you seeing them doing enough that you believe it is an absolute imperative for the Pentagon to move and move with relative speed when it comes to deploying AI? Yeah, I think I think so, right? I think if you were to read the news in any given week, you could probably find several news stories about <clears throat> our adversaries and competitors uh, pursuing AI for whatever their purposes are, right? Uh, I think you can <clears throat> look to the body of strategic documents that have come out in the, let's say, past five years, and I think uh, you would find quite a bit of reference to uh, competition and how AI might be a, a way to get an advantage in competition, right? And so I think you know, they have all the same uh, types of aspirations that we have. And uh, much like the rest of the world, right, they're experiencing more and more in their everyday life applications of artificial intelligence and machine learning. And they see it in their day-to-day -day lives and then they think to themselves, how do I get that advantage uh, on the battlefield in strategic competition and those types of things? And so, you know, necessarily we, we, 
we should be doing that. We should and are doing those things as well. I'd like to talk about some of the challenges you may face within the Department of Defense. DOD is a huge organization. It is sometimes perceived as being stodgy. Is there institutional resistance to what you're trying to do? I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't call it institutional resistance. Uh, that that makes it sound uh, kind of deliberate. You know, I think that uh, the Department of Defense has had a pretty, you know, uh, effective track record at uh, fielding um, some of the world's uh, most capable systems for defending our country. And so I think that that has uh, been a deliberate process. That's one that's been built over a long time, a long term. Um, a lot of, most of those, those big um, systems uh, take years and years to build. So, so I, the, the system is, is kind of uh, by design, semi-intentional design in, in, in some cases, um, uh, a long-term uh, process. Uh, but that process is, you know, need needs to be improved. It doesn't doesn't uh, suck compatible necessarily with um, IT heavy uh, capabilities that uh, that you know that can, you know, we, we talk about a five year uh, fiscal year um, department plan, and that so that the the FIDEP uh, is is kind of the the general uh, planning horizon that that the uh, that the department uses. Uh, using that five year plan for technology. Um, the technology could could have come and gone, you know, in, in that period. So um, I think that uh, that that limitation has been um, being worked, and I think that there there are uh, a lot of efforts to try to improve that, make decisions um, more uh, more timely, more in tune with um, the the types of procurement and acquisitions uh, that are needed to uh, to leverage IT and get IT into. Um, you know, operation a lot faster. So, yeah, is there, I, I think that again, where there's certainly, you know, um, the department like, like most branches of government have, uh, you know, uh, a, a range of ages and, and personnel and, and, um, comfort levels with adoption of new ideas, new technology, new approaches. Uh, and I think that, you know, we, I'm, I'm consistently surprised at, uh, level of innovation and the interest in trying new things uh, that are across uh, that that uh, area you know so i guess there is a you know a slightly smaller uh, demographic of people uh, at least uh, you know on the military side uh, wearing the uniform um, so that you know maybe, maybe that has some kind of effect of you know kind of getting more of the uh, more people that are digital natives into that demographic, and that makes us a little more um, uh, tolerant, was more interested in in developing and incorporating new technology, new ideas. Uh, but I think that in general, that has uh, helped us, at the, you know, to to get to a point where uh, you know where this man machine teaming isn't uh, a completely foreign concept, um, and will help us, uh, you know, get to a point where we can really get the most out of that relationship. So you're trying to speed procurement up because as you mentioned, technology is developing very quickly, but procurement also tends to favor, as I understand it, the big contractors, not the small startups where so much of the AI innovation is taking place. Is that a challenge? 
it, it can be a challenge, I would I would say. Um, but I think that's that's one of the reasons that you have an organization uh, like CDAO, right? We have a whole acquisitions um, uh, directorate that that is their job is how do we enable the acquisitions of AI and machine learning systems and 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 also data and analytics, right? But uh, AI is certainly on that list, and um, you know, and it is to address what you're talking about. Uh, you know, our acquisition system uh, is designed to do what it does, which is to buy these big programs over time. And certainly, uh, like Lieutenant Colonel DeSaro mentioned, you know, if we wait five years, we could miss, uh, you know, many opportunities that are important to national security. And so, you know, that work is going on. Um, and we are enabling that work here at CDAO. Uh, if some of your uh, listeners are interested in what, what that kind of looks like, uh, there is a platform called Tradewinds AI, which you can uh, find uh, and see what kinds of things that we're interested in and uh, see, what, um, see what types of uh, products people are offering uh, as part of that effort to make it more uh, accessible through the acquisition system. And if I could jump in there uh, again, um... Uh, our uh, De Deputy Secretary of Defense has is, is kind of laid out some objectives of, uh, of, of the, the C-suite. And one of those is, you know, um, making sure that we partner with uh, all, all the uh, places that are really, you know, fueling innovation here uh, to include um, small businesses. Uh, you know, uh, there's a, a lot of programs that are out there to, to get those small business ideas. Uh, across the, you know, they call it the valley of death, you know, where you get a, a great idea that looks great in research and development, but getting it into the hands of an operator, um, uh, you know, be it a warfighter or uh, somebody who's, you know, supports the the, um, the operation with logistics or supply, those kinds of things, getting it to those, into those hands of those people is uh, is, is that the valley of death uh, that, that you hear a lot about um, in acquisition circles. Uh, so, uh, you know, we've, we've been, Given a mandate um, by um, the, the Deputy Secretary of Defense to, to overcome those things, and, and Tradewind is a great example. You know they've they've gotten um, to they've got a lot of small industry, uh, small uh, companies in to uh, you know work on uh, the the hard problems of the of the Department of Defense. Um, we've got a mandate to reach out to um, academia. Uh, there's a, a, a broad range of uh, federal labs that that are all doing. Um, cutting edge research in, in, in these IT fields. And so I think that um, that that, that uh, message has been heard and that those those opportunities and the, the uh, capabilities that are in those uh, portions of the American economy and the American um, IT space um, are, are being pursued um, in, you know, to, to some credit to um, to to this uh, this leadership team of the Department of Defense. One thing that I've heard is that the military is um, averse to failure. If you're spending money on something, you want to make sure it works. When we're dealing with an emerging technology, it doesn't always happen that way. Does there have to be a change in mindset where the possibility of failure becomes uh, more acceptable? So I would say that, uh, you know, we, we um, you know, more recently, I think that uh, that attitude has changed, right? There's been a lot of experimentation, a lot more experimentation that I've seen in the second half of my career, you know, the last 10 years and in the first half. Uh, and uh, and it's for, for precisely that reason, right? We, we will 
not find the right solution, right? Uh, some of the time we will fail with an experiment, um, you know, and I think that as long as we're being purposeful with that, right? Purposeful experimentation so that we're failing in a way that we uh, learn something and we can move on to the next iteration and see if we can learn more until we find something uh, that either solves a problem for us uh, or is the solution that we're looking for. How much money is the Pentagon spending on its AI efforts? And is it enough? Uh, I, I don't have uh, you know exact details here. Uh, there's um, like a lot of kind of uh, supporting technologies, uh, organizations are given opportunities to uh, to dig into uh, anything that they think is going to help them. You know, and so I think that there's a lot of things happening at the service level. Uh, there's happening, you know, there's there's uh, and, and there's uh, an effort to conduct a broad inventory of AI again, uh, mandated by the administration and um, to to really get a sense of and corral these things. Um, ironically enough, using some of the data platforms that uh, we use uh, for our other mission partners to to get a sense of you know how uh, broad this investment is, where we can uh, find efficiencies, where we can share research, where we can share uh, you know procurement or uh, acquisitions processes. So I think it's a, it's it's a significant number. Um, is it enough? Uh, well, again, you know, I think that the, the good news here is that, you know, that process listens to uh, the users, you know, the, the, the kind of ground level um, operators that, uh, that are looking to improve, um, you know, small operations at a perhaps, you know, tactical level, um, all the way up to, to massive uh, system procurements that, um, that are looking to, you know, field uh, major uh, weapon systems like aircraft carriers and subs and uh, new fighters, those kinds of things. So where we can find efficiencies in there, uh, those investments are being made and they're being made at, at a lot of different levels. Uh, whether it's enough, you know, again, that's, that's a, it's a, it's a difficult um, question to answer uh, as so many uh, questions in defense are to answer, you know, what, when do, when are we ever secure enough? It's, it's a, it's a, it's a challenging question. Uh, you know, my take is uh, yes. It's 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 about right. You know, in terms of uh, the the ability of ourselves or, you know, that we have to continue to make progress, uh, the ability that we have to uh, really get a sense that uh, we're we're looking at the problem from as many angles as we can, um, and living within those means. I presume and hope that um, you guys are really looking at interoperability across the different branches of the US military. But I'm also curious about interoperability with our allies. Everybody's looking at AI, everybody's making some investments. How big a concern is interoperability and how is it being addressed? Yeah, I mean, this is a, a, a huge concern, right? And so, um, but you know, I think it's uh, widely understood across the Department of Defense that, uh, you know, we will not fight alone. We will not uh, be successful at providing national security, both for our, ourselves, our allies and partners, without our allies and partners, right? And so interoperability is at the top of the list. Uh, I mean, I think when we announced uh, the recent uh, DOD AI and data strategy the other uh, day, right, that was uh, in conjunction with uh, a conference that was going on in the UK with some of our closest allies and partners. And so I think this is, you know, at the top of everybody's list. 
Um, you know, I also also think uh, that it's nested within uh, the principles that um, you know uh, are being expressed in our strategic documents with regard to uh, responsible AI, right? So we have a res responsible AI strategy that has been put out, um, and so you know, uh, interoperability is certainly uh, at the top of the list and nested under our response our approach to responsible AI. So I'd love to wrap this up by getting. Um from each of you, your vision for how you think AI will have transformed DOD operations and war fighting in, let's say, another 15 years. I think defense of our country, you know, uh, defensive values, defensive things that we think are important, uh, defensive allies and partners that we think uh, you know, share those values of, you know, a, a world where competition's okay, uh, but we respect each other's borders. We have, you know, uh, respect for human rights. I think all of those things are still going to be a requirement, you know, are still going to be what, um, what people want uh, and, and what, you know, governments should endeavor to pursue. So I think that in the end, it's still a human effort, and this is an area where I think um, uh, the generative AI will really democratize uh, information technology, uh, because again, it's it's historically been the things you could do with information technology were uh, uh, highly dependent upon you know how uh, talented your your people were at talking in computer languages. But the ability to now talk in English or, or your mother language, you know, whatever your language might be, and get IT to respond um, and, and do things for you and can and, and enable operations, um, I think is is uh, that that's where kind of that 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 revolutionary uh, term starts to starts to come in. And so I think that you know I, I see the ability to to partner, uh, you know, and, and as you know, fifty years it'll probably literally be a partnership. Uh, with information technology much more uh, tightly in a more informed way because, you know, that's what IT is good for, right? It can collect a lot of information and it can uh, factor all that information into your, to an individual person's decision-making. Uh, but in the end, it's still going to be about language and, and the ability to translate those things into, into words that matter, into, you know, actions uh, that, that matter across uh, government. So I, I think that that's, you know, where, not that IT will, you know, make everybody um, happy with each other, but I think that those opportunities um, are certainly there. And I think that, you know, we'll see those as uh, part of the structure that we use uh, uh, in, in the future um, to maintain the, you know, balance between um, our national interests, um, our partners, allies and partners, national interest and, and you know, uh, global natural national or global interests. Lieutenant Colonel Ortiz, anything to add to that? Your vision for the future? Yes. Yeah, so I think, you know, in the next uh, 15 years, we will see a, a, a lot of change. Um, but what I think uh, is key about um, technology like artificial intelligence is that it, it's a tool, right? And we should use that tool uh, to change the character of warfare uh, in our favor. Right. And I think that, that that's at all levels at, at strategic competition uh, with our global adversaries, um, uh, 
being able to um, be interoperable with our allies and partners uh, down to the tactical level where we're providing, uh, you know, the young Americans who volunteer by the uh, thousands to be part of the armed forces and making sure that they have the uh, best capabilities available enabled by artificial intelligence so that should they be called upon to do their job, they're the most prepared and ready military in the world. Thank you, Lieutenant Colonel John DeSaro and Lieutenant Colonel Pedro Ortiz. It's been great to have you both with me. Thanks so much. You have been listening to NatSec Tech, a podcast from the Special Competitive Studies Project. I'm Jean Mazur. Take care.